Thank you, Caleb. If you have your sermon insert on the inside of your worship booklet there, it should say Unfolding Grace on the outside. We've been looking at and surveying the Old Testament story, which is one unfolding story with the New Testament of God's goodness and grace to his people. We, uh, are, we found ourselves in Ezra this morning. Um, I was telling somebody between services that I think this has been one of the harder sermon series is to preach. There's just so much to do. Yeah, 30 minutes. Today I'll be lucky with 32. We'll see. Um, don't hold me accountable, but 30 minutes uh, to, to cover so much. And as if Ezra wasn't enough, I decided to do Ezra and Nehemiah. So we'll just cover everything uh, basically from this time period to Jesus. But I, I hope and trust that there's some, some usefulness to this. I think there's a lot of connection between this people and this point in history with us as we'll see throughout this morning. So, let us do as our our custom here, um, before we get too comfy, let's stand for the reading of God's word from Ezra. I'm using Ezra chapter 1 as our scripture reading this morning. This will set the stage for us and then launch us, propel us through the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, which were originally one book. Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, And the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were, uh, sorry, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares. Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have mentioned before from the pulpit and in conversation, likely, um, you know that I enjoy reading biography. I constantly have a biography that I return to in my reading digest. Specifically, I enjoy Christian biographies. Saints of of brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us. And in a lot of ways, 
they have lived amazing lives. If you have a biography written about you, you've done something amazing. For example, this year I've read a biography of John Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Uh, a, tr- a cannibal tribe, unreached, dangerous, and he had a rough time. Years of fruitlessness, losing his wife and child, and sleeping on their grave because the cannibals wanted to enjoy. But through his work, laying a foundation, the entire island becomes Christian. Still to this day, people walking with the Lord in the New Hebrides Islands because of John Patton. Tom Carson, another biography I've read. You might not know him. You may know of his son, D.A. Carson, the co-founder, once was president of the Gospel Coalition. His dad, Tom Carson, did some amazing things. A Baptist, Canadian preacher, pastor, did some revival stuff, saw amazing things in his life. I also read biography of Susanna Wesley. You may know that last name because she had, I believe it was 11 children. You probably know of two of them. John Wesley who started a denomination, uh, Methodism, and his, uh, his brother, Charles Wesley, who we're going to be singing a lot here in a few weeks, come Advent. He was a prolific hymn writer and has written a number of our Christmas songs. They're extraordinary. But I actually enjoy Christian biography not for those parts. I enjoy reading Christian biography because so much of those three and so much of all the other biographies I've, I've read is how ordinary they were. Yes, John Patton did what he did. Traveled across the sea, brought revival upon an island of cannibals. And yet, most of his life was reading his Bible and praying and slaying his own sin. Seeking to pass the gospel on to the next generation and dying happily in the Lord. Tom Carson did amazing things. Discipled a son who would go on to start the Gospel Coalition alongside Dr. Keller and saw amazing things and conversions, but he often preached to about a room of 40 people. Tried to be a good husband, loved his wife in her last years, which is very hard. Taught the gospel to the next generation, prayed, read his Bible. Susanna Wesley, still a little extreme, just in all the, always, getting up at 4 a.m. to pray for two hours before the rest of the house got up. Um, but other than that, mostly ordinary. Read her Bible, discipled her kids, taught them to sing and, a, and grow in a love for the scriptures. Ordinary life. Seeking the Lord, studying him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, praying, loving your neighbor. If you're married, being a good spouse. If you have children, teaching them the ways of the Lord. So much of life as freed exiles is ordinary. And yet if we have eyes to see, That ordinary life, which is our life, is extraordinary. Because we clock in and we clock out. We go to bed and we wake up. We teach the gospel to our children. We love our neighbors ourselves. And we do so empowered by and in partnership with the king. Their life, the life of Ezra and Nehemiah, and the whole land of Israel in this time, was an ordinary life in a lot of ways, as I'm going to show us throughout the morning. We have a lot of similarities with these people. So what I want you to see is my, my main argument there in your, uh, the inside of your sermon insert is that life as freed exiles often looks like ordinary faithfulness while waiting for God to act powerfully. Life as freed exiles. They are free. They're returning to their land. 
But they're still exiles. They're still pilgrims in this life and will be, and we will be until glory. But we've been freed by Jesus, his work in our place, his perfect life, his suffering and his death for us, his glorious resurrection. We are freed, freed from sin, freed from death, but life as freed exiles until our faith is turned to sight, until we die or until Jesus returns looks pretty ordinary. Life as freed exiles in their day and age and in ours is one of ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary obedience while we wait on God to move. The way we're going to move through this morning is a history lesson and then a couple of takeaways from this period. Um, Just full transparency. In seminary you get maybe one class on this period of time and maybe a lecture or two on this period. If you're like me, at least that was my, my experience. If you're like me, uh, even before seminary, and, and there's you, many of you have been walking with the Lord different amounts of time. You've probably read your Bibles. You know the Genesis story. That's cool. That's great. Abraham, you got Moses and Egypt and the slavery thing, parting Red Sea, the plagues. Got that. Okay. Don't know what's going on with the law. We try to struggle through that. Okay. And then we get to David. It's a cool story. He's the king. They have peace. And then Jesus comes. We're like, wait, wait. There's like a thousand years you just missed. From David to Jesus, I hope to maybe help us this morning bridge the gap. The, the four or five hundred years or so right before Jesus comes, a lot happens, and it starts here. So we're going to do a little brief history lesson that I hope is entertaining uh, a little bit, and you understand the story more and are more comfortable with the Ezra-Nehemiah time period. And then I've got a few takeaways for us. You can see um, the sermon insert on the, the outline side. Things evolve through the week. I realize uh, my temptations to uh, try to do more than I can actually accomplish in a small window of time. So there's four takeaways there. We're going to get to like two. Um, but let's turn to the Lord now in a history lesson. So first, I have for us a history of Israel's return from Babylonian captivity. This basically began, if we went back all the way to Solomon, he's the king in Israel. He's David's son, peace on earth, peace in Israel. He has a son, Rehoboam who does some stupid things, and the kingdom splits in two. The 12 tribes are cut in half. Ten tribes up north make up what's called Israel. It's kind of confusing, I know. And the southern two tribes make up what is commonly called Judah. Um, Basically, there's an invading force, which I'll explain in a second, wipes out the the ten tribes up up north. The, The surviving refugees from those ten tribes migrate south into the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah, and then that becomes like the new Israel. So sometimes in Scripture you'll see Judah and Israel, and it's referencing the northern and southern kingdoms, which are very different. But sometimes you see Judah and Israel, and it's referencing the same people. It's just all of them. In 586 B.C., that southern kingdom of Judah, sometimes called Israel, if you consider all of the the refugees that came down, were basically leveled, decimated, in 586 B.C. by Babylon. Led by King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in and he destroys the temple, levels the city, breaks down the walls, and then takes everyone into exile. We are supposed to imagine the front of your sermon insert there. The city is smoldering. It's an ashtray. It has been leveled. There's nothing there. The people are brought into exile in Babylon, And that was the topic of last week's sermon. Jeremiah the prophet, you can go back and and listen to it. 
Roger preached uh, Jeremiah 29. It was really helpful and insightful. He's prophesying in exile because some false prophets arose. I know we're in slavery in Babylon, but don't get comfortable. God's going to deliver us. We'll be back in a jiffy. Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah's entire prophecy is basically, no, we're going to be here for a while, 70 years or so to be exact. Get comfortable, love your neighbor, live an ordinary life, seek the peace of those around you, love your neighbor, seek God, because we're going to be, be here for a while. And as a matter of fact, most of you are going to die here. Um, something important happens in 539 B.C., that is Babylon... Those, that, that kingdom, that empire falls. Persia takes over. Which leads us to our first verse of Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is a new world empire. If you read the Gospels, there is an enemy often of God's people and of, of the church known as Rome. But before Rome, from David, basically until Jesus, from David until Rome, there are three major enemies of the people of God. Assyria, Babylon, and then Persia. Bear with me. This will make sense in a second. Assyria is the first main enemy of God's people, and they are pretty brutal. They, the, those three kingdoms, uh, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, have different ways of taking over, different ways of asserting their dominance as the world empire. Assyria is known as the most brutal. They come in, and their tactic is to level everything, murder most of the people, Take the survivors and completely wash out their bloodlines. Completely take over your culture. Eliminate your religion. You're now ours. You talk back, your head's off. And you just disappear. The Samaritans come from the intermarrying of the Assyrian people with those ten northern tribes. That kind of becomes important in the life of Jesus. That's the Assyrian Empire. They fall eventually, though, and Babylon comes. Think King Nebuchadnezzar in the David, I'm sorry, Daniel story. Lions Den and Furnace. That's that's Babylon. They're a little more humane, although I just told you they leveled the temple, decimated the city of Jerusalem. They're still, you know, they're still conquering. But their tactic is to take you into exile, to bring you back to their land, and to slowly, culturally appropriate you. Change your mind. Morph you into their culture and into their religion. It's kind of like syncretism. Blend you with Babylon. They fall Persia's on the throne. Cyrus is reigning. The Persian Empire is basically running the known world. They have a very different way of running the world. And that is that everyone can have their own gods. Everyone can have their own places and their own cities of worship as long as you don't talk back. So, we have this very, it's kind of like pluralism, but big time. Everybody can have their own worship space in their own cities, but you have to bow to the king of Persia. And so that's verse 1. But it's interesting because Cyrus has some own, his own selfish reasons that we see. He, he wants a city over in Israel. He wants access to the sea. It's very convenient for a bunch of his people to be over there. Even if they're worshiping their God, blah, 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 they're still bowing to me. But we see all along in verse 1. It was so the word by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Cyrus ain't in control. Cyrus isn't really releasing the people to go back. God is moving Cyrus's heart every way he wants to do it. God's in control. It's this beautiful picture of 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility all wound up in one verse. We're not even past Ezra 1.1 yet. So right now we're in 539 B.C. Babylon falls. Persia comes on the scene led by King Cyrus. A year later begins what is called the return from exile. This is the story we're looking at today. We're coming out of exile now. Now the people of Israel come out of exile largely in three waves. It's not all at once. Right? I'm already seeing people like, whoa, I didn't know that. It came in waves. The first wave is what I just read. The first wave of exiles returns in 539 B.C. under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And it's basically surveying uh, Ezra 1 through 6. Ezra ch- chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It's that. The first wave. Zerubbabel becomes the governor. He's kind of a big deal. He is from David's line. We learn throughout Chronicles. Remember, God said, I'm, you're, you're, you're always going to have a dynasty. There's always going to be one of David's descendants on the throne. And so God's got to preserve this line, and he sure does. It's a miracle when you think about it. Zerubbabel has now returned to their place. David's blood is still in the city of Jerusalem. Zerubbabel, the king, our governor. And then Jeshua is the priest. So we have this beautiful picture of king and priest. David's Line continues, we've got a king there, although he's a king without a kingdom. And then we have a priest. We have a way for the people to be forgiven through blood. This first wave in 538 sets to build the temple. That's their their purpose, temple rebuild, which we'll talk about in a moment. Takes a while. It's eventually rebuilt, finished, and dedicated in 516 B.C. But then 80 years goes by. The temple's rebuilt, but then there's not much other than that. People still aren't living in the city. It's not safe. The walls haven't been rebuilt, and it's still kind of smoldering. So now imagine ashtray with a cool building in the middle. Ezra leads the second wave of exiles in uh, 458 B.C. His goal, he hears about what's going on, and he's like, we're still missing a big thing, the word of God. Temple's rebuilt. Okay, great. But the people are still living just mediocre, apathetic lives. They need the scriptures. They need God's direction. So I, Ezra, am going to lead a second wave, and we're going to get back to the Bible. Ezra 7 through 10 covers that period. Third and final, the last wave of exiles returns under the leadership of Nehemiah in 445 B.C. And you can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah at the time is still off in Babylon. He's serving, uh, or Persia. He's serving as a cupbearer, which is an important role, and he gets word about what's going on back in Jerusalem. Temple's rebuilt, but it's still smoldering. Ezra's doing some good work, reading his Bible and preaching, but they're still, they need a lot of help. And, he, and Nehemiah's like, we can't have that. He leads a wave. He comes back, and he restores culture in the city. People start to live in Jerusalem again. The walls are rebuilt, and he further reforms worship alongside Ezra. You can read about it in the book of Nehemiah. Again, that third wave is focusing on rebuilding the walls. If you know anything about Nehemiah, it's often the wall rebuild. It's a famous passage. If you've got a building fund or you're starting a new project, we go to Nehemiah, build the walls. It's not really, it's not, not really for that. But it might also prove helpful to know prophets Zechariah and Haggai are during this period. They, they know Ezra and Nehemiah. They're talking this same period of time. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Ezra cover to cover, or Ezra and Nehemiah, which was one book, like I mentioned, if I were you, I would read the first five chapters and then stop. Because the temple rebuilding 
gets stalled. There's enemies that come against them. They're like, okay, fine, maybe we shouldn't, and they just slow down. It's through Haggai the prophet, which we can read his work. It's called Haggai, uh, re-encourages them to get back to the work. So Ezra 1 through 5, stop in verse 1 of chapter 5. Go read Haggai and then come back. So that's all going on. So that's that's the history lesson. That's what's going on. That's how we got here. I want to take a couple takeaways from this story to our lives and then move from Ezra and Nehemiah to Jesus. So, four lessons of ordinary faithfulness from Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, we're going to do like two and a half. The first one I want you to see from the life of these returning exiles, these freed exiles, is ordinary faithfulness in worship. It's hard for us to imagine. They're coming back. Remember, they're coming back, yes, as freed. They, they have, you know, 5,400 vessels, whatever those looked like. They're still not coming back with a lot. They've been in exile. What they can carry is about it. And what is the first thing they do upon returning to their city? They get to rebuilding the temple. They're like, we'll get to our homes. Yeah, okay, we'll get you back in school in a second, bud. Hold on. We've got to get the temple back up and running. This is prime importance. Everything else falls in comparison. We'll get to those later. It's temple. And we've, we've tried to hit this throughout our Old Testament survey, the importance of the temple. It's really hard for us to grasp. The temple, friends, was the center of their worship. It is where prayer was heard. If you wanted God to hear you, you went to the temple. Or if you were out in the sticks, you at least prayed in the direction of the temple and hoped it got there. The temple is where prayer was heard. It was also where forgiveness of sins happened. You wanted sins covered, you spilled the blood of animals at the temple. Okay, so pause for a second. Where have these people been for 70 years? In Babylon. What are they going to do with their sin? They haven't had their sins forgiven in 70 years. What are we going to do? How is God going to deal with me? Or... I've come back to Jerusalem. I'm helping the rebuild of the temple. But what's the story with my dad who died in exile? Unable to seek forgiveness of sins because the temple's gone. There's this tension. There's this question. Like, what's going to happen? The temple's where God lived. We know that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent is the, the, the fancy word for it. He's everywhere. But he chose mysteriously to manifest himself in the temple. It was where heaven and earth were touching in one location, where heaven and earth were overlapping the temple. It is where the nations around came. They were drawn to it. And from the temple, God sent his people out to be a light to the nations. It is so important. It's the center of their worship. And that's why the first thing they do is get to setting that back up, to building it. It takes them 20 years, 20 plus years. But something curious happens, two things actually. You can read this later this afternoon or or sometime this week, Ezra chapter 3, specifically verses 10 through 13. They lay the foundation, they start building the temple up, and some people start crying. Not tears of joy, bummer tears. You might know the story. Verses 10 through 13 of chapter 3, the, the, the foundation's been laid, the walls are going up, the people doing the work, the younger generation is like, yes, we've got it. Temple's coming back together. 
We're going to have prayers heard, forgiveness of sins. We're going to be able to worship again. God's going to be honored. Yahweh will be here. Yes! And those who are old enough to see the temple before, see the work they're doing, and are weeping. That ain't going to work. That is nothing like the first temple. They are saddened. And so it's, it's, uh, if you have parents, uh, or if you're parents, uh, you've probably experienced this. The kids are playing in another room. You hear a loud bang, and then you hear noises. But you're not sure if it's laughter or crying. Uh, do, do we go? Is, are they happy? Is it, is, are those happy? To hear? Are, are they laughing, or are they screaming and crying? I'm not actually sure. Like, that's the, the whole city of Jerusalem at that moment. Praise and shouts of adoration, and then crying and lamenting in depression. That's the first thing that happens. It's not as great as the, the Solomon's temple. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, though, there's a real question. Where's God? Temple's rebuilt. We've been freed to come back. Cyrus told us to do it. We know the Lord moved in his heart to, to send us back to the land. But if you've been an Israelite, there was a proto-temple called the Tabernacle with Moses and those guys. There was a temple that was built under Solomon, and now we have this second temple. When the Tabernacle was put together and when the temple was built and dedicated, some cool things happened, right? God said, I'm coming. Fire from heaven, a smoke, voice, earthquake, God coming to live in this earthly building. They rebuilt this second temple, and there's no evidence that God's come back. Where, where is the Lord? There's no cloud. There's no fire. There's no appearance of God's presence actually at, at all. Is he here? Ezekiel's prophecy opens with the glory of God departing out of the temple. He's leaving. Did he come back? Is he, is he here? This beautiful story is that the people are waiting. Will he come? When will he arrive? These are the 400 years leading up to Jesus, and it's radio silence from heaven. Until these words. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, this Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This Word, friends, listen to this, became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word templed. He tabernacled among us. Ezra and Nehemiah and, and the crew, they're waiting for God to come. When is God going to come? When the Word became flesh and templed among us. And we've seen His glory. It's the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the next day when John the Baptist sees him, he's blown away and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
<coughs> What's the deal? Where is God at this rebuilt temple? <clears throat> He's waiting to send the real temple, Jesus Christ. Jesus arrives. God's King, God's Messiah, our God made flesh to redeem a people from exile, but to sin and death this time. Jesus is God's glory. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the better temple builder. He's making a house for God. It just has nothing to do with stones and mortar and brick. It has to do with people. That's exactly what Peter tells us. One of Jesus' closest followers in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, says, Come to him, all of you, as you come to Jesus, who was a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. When did God show back up at the temple? When he built a new one, not through Nehemiah and Ezra, but through Christ crucified and risen, and the people Jesus made his own. It's you. Oh, that's good news. God's here. He dwells here. And it's a plural thing. It's us, y'all. We are together the temple. Right about this time, first service too. <coughs> I was struck by coughing, so please pray for me wherever you are sitting. <coughs> what I want to say here from this point though, application to our souls is that worship is very important. Worship is everything. Seen in Ezra and Nehemiah getting right to the temple rebuilding. The second wave gets back to the reading and preaching of scripture. The third wave sets up the city and then starts singing and praying. It's worship. It might be helpful to define worship. There's one helpful definition I've often returned to by a man named Alan Ross. He says, true worship is the celebration of being in covenant fellowship with the sovereign and holy God. He goes on to say, and it, it manifests its way, itself in three ways, this true worship. In adoration and spontaneous praise of God. In expressed commitment of trust and obedience in the responsibilities of the covenant. And three, memorial reenactment. That is, we embody it physically through ritual acts. But I love that first line. True worship, friends, is celebration and all of life and all of heart celebration that we're in covenant relationship with God. The triune God of the universe. And what I mean by worship is everything, brothers and sisters. It's not just what we're doing right now. I love that you're here. 10.45 to 12 noon or so. Depending on how long I talk. But this is not just worship right here. Worship is all of life. You're not worshiping now for an hour and 15 or so. And then by lunch you're not worshiping. It's just possible you might be worshiping something or someone else. Worship, being made in the image of God, means we are always worshiping. Continuously worshiping. Or to borrow the title of Harold Best, he wrote a book that our music team has been going through called Unceasing Worship. We are unceasing worshipers. And we do it together, and then we scatter. And we worship tonight all week long, and we come back to celebrate together. Worship scattered and worship gathered. But it's all of life. 
It's not turned on and off. The, the question is, is not when or who, I'm, I'm sorry, if we'll worship, it's when and who. Who are we going to worship? Our stuff, our status, our safety, our security, our control, our spouse, our kids, our job. Or is it going to be the, the beautiful and glorious king of the universe revealed, Jesus Christ? We worship gathered and scattered. Worship is, as I've, I've talked about this though, it's often ordinary. I hadn't planned on doing this, but my wife was changing my son's diaper in the second row here before. It's just ordinary. During a call to worship, you might have heard a loud bang. That was Elijah throwing a toy phone. My Elijah. It's, it's often like, get your shoes on, let's go. Oh no, I'm going to be late. It's often flat tire on the way. It's just ordinary. And we get here and we, we sing we pray, we have the call to worship read, and we, we hear the, the sermon preached, the scriptures are read. It's just normal, it's ordinary. And yet, if we have eyes to see it, friends, it's extraordinary. Because the king is talking to us. We're meeting with God. As we're gathered together, God is here. And then through the week, it looks like gathering in small groups. In New City, it's the, our community group ministry. Oftentimes, again, ordinary. Sometimes you might not feel like going. It's been a long week, long day. Might surprise some of you to know I feel that way too, and I lead the ministry. I don't always want to go to community group. It's been a long day. I love a book and a movie and an early bedtime. But every time I go, what happens? My soul is filled. Never regretted going to community group. I've often regretted not going. It looks like having people into our house in the community group uh, or new city community, having them over for meals, come eat, going over to their houses, eating, sharing a meal together, being involved in the various ministry teams, whether it's men's ministry, women's ministry, the events they put on, life as the worshiping people of God looks ordinary, ordinary faithfulness, ordinary obedience, and yet it's amazing, and it is a, an adventure because we get to do it with Jesus and together, which leads me to my second point. Ordinary faithfulness in word and prayer. Ordinary faithfulness in word and prayer. And this is where we're going to get into Ezra. Not the book Ezra, but Ezra himself. He's emphasizing the scriptures, as I mentioned already. I'd be remiss if I didn't show you the main verse, the more famous verse from Ezra. It's uh, chapter 7, verse 10. It's in your insert there. Let's look at Ezra. What, what, is, what does he focus on? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That's the, the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. And to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra hears the temple's rebuilt, but everything's still smoldering. We've got to get the scriptures back in the people's lives. We've got to be Bible people. Scripture People. So what does he do? He sets his heart to study it and to do it. I hear the New Testament letter of James there. Hearers and doers of the word. He loves it. He studies it. He reads it. Why? He certainly believes it to be important or he wouldn't do this. And You see it in his life. I think he rightly understands it to be given from God. Divine revelation. The very words. The precious words of God himself. But I think more basically, why does Ezra set his heart to study the word of God? Because he had the ability and the access. He could read. He knew how to interpret scripture. 
He worked at it, but he had access. He could get the scrolls. It's, it's not like us where we have multiple Bibles in every room of our house. One in the car, one in our pocket at all times, easily accessible. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very thankful for the high literacy rates here in the West where we can read and see God in the Scriptures. But Ezra had that, and that's what set him apart. He set his heart to read the Scriptures, to know them, to do them, and then to share them with everyone around him. You can probably see where I'm going with this. I, I, I think we just need a little bit of Ezra in our life, a little reminder of, of Ezra. Are we cherishing the Scriptures? Because in and through them we see God. We want Jesus, and He's revealed Himself here. That's why we study it. That's why we memorize it. That's why we read it at our dinner tables and teach it to our children, and certainly why we preach it here. This isn't just for show. We believe in the Scriptures. This is God's speech. If we want to hear God's voice, read the Scriptures. If I want to hear God's voice audibly, read them out loud. These are God's words to us. And so we as God's people, we love the Lord and we're trying to, to live life of ordinary faithfulness to Him. We've been transformed by the Spirit. But why? Why do you love God? Because you know God's love for you. Because you know His grace. You know His mercy. You've seen something of Jesus, even if it's just a little bit, and said yes. Where did you learn that? The scriptures. Or someone expounding the scriptures. Or someone singing scripture things. It's the word of God, friends. Propelling everything. And that's a purposeful order that I'm loving Jesus because I've been transformed by Jesus. But I've been transformed by him because I've seen his love. And I've seen his love because he's revealed it to us. So I want to set my heart to study the scriptures. To do them and to teach them to those around me. Friends, let's be Scripture people. Read it, listening to it, having it preached to us, praying it, believing it, confessing where we fall short, and fighting to see Jesus in the Scriptures. It's not just to, uh, individual, though. It's not just Ezra in the corner of the temple with a scroll out. It's not Ezra and the Holy Spirit at home by himself reading the Bible. It's also together. And that's where I put that Nehemiah verse in there. Nehemiah 8.8 8. This is a huge worship gathering in Jerusalem, and they read the Bible all day long. And everybody's there the whole time. I have no idea what that looked like. I've got four kids, and that would last at 30 minutes. But they read it all day, and the people are broken up into little groups around the land, and there's like other teachers out there amongst the people. And they read for a little bit, and then those teachers are like, and this is what it means, and then that, and that word is this, and they're, they're doing it. It's a revival. Look at Nehemiah 8.8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that all the people understood the reading. In the together people of God, not just when they're scattered, Yes, when they're scattered. Yes, when they're in their homes. Yes, when they're gathering for meals. The, the Word of God, the Torah is central. But when they're together, it is as well. It's central to the, the life of God's people. Colossians 3.16 comes to mind every time I think about this topic. You might know it. it says, it's Paul's words to the church in Colossae. And it says, let the Word of Christ 
dwell in you richly. To that, all of us can give a hearty amen. Yes, the word of Christ, the Bible, as, as, as it reveals Jesus to us, yes, let it dwell in my heart richly. Finishing the verse, though, it says, teaching and admonishing one another. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness in our hearts to God. You can't do the Christian life. You can't do life with God alone. It's a together thing. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in community with one another. I need you to speak the word of God into my life as much as I do into yours. It's a y'all thing, friends. Let's cherish the scriptures because, as Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Um, I would also encourage you, it's not just word, it's prayer. Nehemiah 9 has been a, a, a chapter I was praying through this past week, specifically 32 through 37. Some of it has to do with their original context, but it's such a good prayer for us. A prayer of lament, of confessing sin, but one of hope. God's going to act. I encourage you to take a look at that beautiful prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer. Nehemiah 9, 32 through 37. This is where we'll close. If you want more from that third point, go listen to Roger's wonderful sermon last week. That's basically what I was going to get at there. But we don't have time. Fourth and finally, ordinary faithfulness, waiting for God to come. It's a little different for us than it was for them, but not all that different. They've rebuilt a temple. They've recommitted themselves to the scriptures, they're reading, understanding the word of God, they're praying and just doing normal life, but that normal life is marked by waiting. Not, and when I say waiting, don't think inactivity, don't think lazy. Waiting is a leaning forward, an active expectation of God to work. They are waiting for God to come. They're waiting for the king from David's line to come and and establish his kingdom on earth. They're waiting for the seed of the woman to come and crush the head of the serpent. They're waiting for the descendant of Abraham to come, who's going to be a blessing to the nations. They are waiting for the Messiah. We are looking back at the Messiah who has come, freed us from exile, and who will come again. So we're in this time between the times. But for them, their ordinary faithfulness in waiting took the form of different forms depending on who you were. In this period, the 400 years leading up to Jesus' arrival, synagogues basically are created and spread. Worship becomes increasingly divorced from the temple and increasingly centered on synagogue. Synagogue is, is church, literally, like a, a church service. In towns and cities throughout the land... They would have had pastor or pastors, and you'd gather on the Sabbath to hear the word preached, to hear it read. You'd sing or chant, pray. You did church. That becomes very important for Jesus' circuit uh, of preaching and ministry. He went to those. He'd do the church sermon and say, it's me. Uh, but also, as they waited on the Lord, it looked differently. They were there. The people of Israel weren't all unified on what it would look like when the Messiah came. And that becomes, basically from Nehemiah to Jesus, becomes very important. You might have heard of some of these groups. The Zealots, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. 
all Israelites, all Jewish people waiting on Yahweh, waiting on their God, but they're doing so differently. The zealots thought you waited for the Lord by training and then killing. You fought for Yahweh against Rome or against whatever power was there. The Pharisees thought you waited for the Messiah to come by strict religiosity, adding things to the law of God to make sure everyone was clean and not unclean. They were the ones who Jesus butted the head, heads with the most. The Sadducees were basically the compromisers. They, they started to look a lot like the culture. They compromised their religion for popularity, for status. They were very high in the, in the cultural world out there but lost their religion. And lastly, the Essenes. They were the, the, the desert monk-like. Separation from the world. But the point is that they're all waiting for God to come. So as we're closing the Old Testament story, yes, we have a few more weeks in this series because we'll go to the prophets for a little bit, but we're kind of closing the Old Testament here. It ends with failure and hope. They failed to be a light to the nations. There's a lot of pain. They're still asking and waiting, when is God going to come? But there's hope. Because he said he's come, he will come. There's going to be a King David. We just don't know what it's going to look like. And we, friends, are now going to the table and have the answer blaring before us. When is Jesus going to come? I'm sorry, when, when is God going to come? When, when is the Messiah going to come? It's in Jesus. We see it clearly on this side of the cross. The zealots and Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and all the others were leaning forward, waiting for the fulfillment of God's purposes. And we have now seen it. It's Jesus. He comes onto the scenes in a strikingly ordinary way, I might add. But he says, it's me. You've been waiting for me all along. I, Jesus, change everything. How is God going to restore his rule over the nations? Through Jesus. How is he going to purify his people and cleanse them of their sins? Jesus. How is he going to build this temple? Jesus. Sending the Spirit and making a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Worship the one true king? How's God going to be king? Jesus. And it's that that brings us to the table. Friends, it's only Jesus. It was always Jesus, and it's only going to be Jesus. When we come to the table each week, it's not just one of those ritual rites that we're just going through the motions. We're actually nourished by Jesus at this table. When we, by faith, say yes. I believe you, and I trust you afresh. I am a pilgrim on the way. Yes, you freed me, Jesus, but I'm still in exile, and I'm waiting. So feed my soul as I, by faith, meet with you at the table.